When I spoke up about some of my concerns to my faculty advisor, my faculty advisor admitted to me that they are aware and they speak about in their faculty meetings the fact that they're not training counselors who are going to be able to work with the Trump supporter. And this is how she put it. She said, the Trump, what does that mean? The way that I'm hearing it, it's anybody who's voting Republican, which that's half the country. Counselors are going to be for a certain political base, but that's actually what they're telling us. And the way that the rhetoric is, is going on in the classroom and from the administration, it, I'm really seeing that supported, that we have a class of mental health professionals who have been trained to see the world from a very strong standpoint and to imprint that upon their clients. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist. And I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Leslie Elliott. She is a coach in the state of Washington who's recently come into the public spotlight because of her whistleblowing videos about Antioch University. Leslie has been involved in a uh, master's in counseling program there and has revealed some disturbing information about the ideological takeover of the field. I think our conversation is going to be highly pertinent to a lot of the people who reach out to me because I hear frequently from graduate students and people at other various early points in the counseling profession who have a good heart and mind for this type of work and so share the same type of concerns that Leslie has uh, had up close and personal experience with. And these sorts of folks often send me questions asking what I think they should do in their situation. Now, of course, I can't offer advice for anyone in particular, but I think it's really great today that I get to talk to Leslie and she can share her thought process about what it's been like to go into the, the field of counseling education in this day and age. So Leslie, welcome. Thanks so much for, for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. So for people who haven't seen your viral videos, can you fill us in on how we got to this conversation today? Sure. So I began this program at Antioch University in 2019. And it was within the first two quarters that I started to really sense that something was very different about the way that um, educational and psychological concepts were being conveyed. It, I had taken several years off from higher education um, and I had a bachelor's in psychology and I'd gone to law school. I didn't complete law school. I decided to, to, that I wanted to go back into graduate study in psychology. Took a couple years off and came back and there was just a completely different foundational underpinning. I didn't have a language for it at the time. I didn't know about what social justice meant. I didn't know what this ideology meant at all. I thought social justice sounded like a nice thing. So, you know, the school said they were all for social justice. And I, I, I didn't think that this was a term of art that encompassed an entire um, ideological framework. 
So I started noticing that there were certain things that that really didn't sit well with me. And one of the courses that I took was um, a multicultural perspectives course that was a required part of um, the early coursework. And in this course, we were getting an overview of what how do I even say this? It was sort of a framework that was so simplistic that it seemed like something that would be taught to middle schoolers, only the kind of stereotyped, um, I guess, the way that they were talking about different demographic characteristics, it seemed like you wouldn't even teach this to an eighth grader because it was diabolical. It was like, she started off by introducing us to the addressing model which is an acronym using the word addressing to uh, describe different de demographic characteristics, age, disability, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, religion, etc. And we were supposed to rank ourselves and our clients according to this model, giving ourselves either an, uh, a, a value of marginalized or privileged for each different category, and then giving the client the same uh, ranking. And then we, we sort of stack these up and see who comes out more privileged. And this was to teach you how to relate to your client. And so this was very early on in my program. And I thought, this is just so strange. I, I can't get on board with this. I think there must be a problem with how this teacher is teaching. But as I've gone through the coursework and gone through the program, it's happening over and over. It's the underlying foundation of what Antioch wants to teach its students is this social justice ideology. It's basically replaced classical notions of psychology and education. And I have reached a point in my program where I'm almost finished with my coursework, but they've ramped up the, the way that they're pushing this ideology to the point where now there's a civility pledge that they require students to take before they can do their classes. And this is a social justice pledge. So it's just increased the tenor of this, um, this bias has increased throughout the program. And I got to a point where I thought I really am not comfortable with this and I'm going to go ahead and go public because I think people need to understand that counselors are not being trained according to a classical psychological model anymore. They are being used as agents of social change in order to influence vulnerable people that come into their practice and push divisive rhetoric. When you talk about, for example, the addressing model mm -hmm. and you're ranking yourself and your client according to each of these demographic markers, I mean, most of those sound like immutable characteristics, first mm -hmm. of all, which doesn't say anything about the individual mm -hmm. and how they're making meaning mm -hmm. of their life experience. But I, I also take that um, there's like a, predetermined value. Mm -hmm. So for example, white is always more privileged than black, mm -hmm. regardless of like, let's say you as a white, you're, you're a white therapist from like rural Kentucky and you have a, a black client from like a Connecticut who went to prep school. Mm -hmm. But, but when you go through the race part, it's like, well, I guess, I guess when you go to the socioeconomic status part, but still, I'm just, I'm just trying to like get a sense of exactly how reductive this is. Absolutely. It seems like part of the problem is, is the reductiveness, mm -hmm. the lack of, the lack of individuality. Also the kind of 
it seems like there's an assumption there that all of these things are equally influential Mm -hmm. for all people. Mm -hmm. I think you said in one of your videos that if someone wasn't placing a lot of emphasis on their demographics, that your school is actually teaching you the role of the therapist should be to increase that person's consciousness, I guess is the word they used, that that increase the uh, degree to which your client conceptualizes themselves through these demographics. Is that right? Yes, it was um, explicitly told to us that our job is to increase the client's racial identity salience. So if you're speaking with a client, one, one of the jobs that we were told was that, uh, first of all, we were told that our primary roles as a counselor were as an activist and an advocate for marginalized people, which just didn't, that seems nonsensical to me <laughs> in terms of what counseling really is. It's work with individuals. And this is more spinning it into like a sociological framework. But if you are, one of your first priorities with your client is to broach race, according to this program. And broaching race means that you're going to have a discussion about about your ethnic background. So if you and I are sitting together, I'm supposed to talk to you about the fact that you are a, um, a privileged white woman and what does that mean to you. And it doesn't matter what you came in for. I'm, I'm looking at you and looking at your skin and I'm assuming privilege and I'm going to talk to you about that and get into that discussion. And, and uh, as awkward and strange as that sounds, that's really what they asked us to do. And so especially if I'm sitting, if I'm a, a light-skinned person, I'm sitting with somebody with darker skin than myself, I'm actually to have a conversation with them upon meeting them about how they feel sitting with somebody with lighter skin than them and, and what that means about there are relative marginalization and privilege. And then if they don't really mind, if that's not a really big deal to them, if they, they don't, if that seems like it's not something that they want to bite on, my job is to increase their racial identity salience by talking to them about the ways that they've been victimized by white supremacy or the way that they've perpetrated it. I, oh, that sounds so disastrous. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, imagine being someone of whatever skin color and that's like not a big deal to you. And I come to you, Leslie, thinking, here's a therapist. She can help me with my like mommy issues or whatever, you know, (laughs) my uh, death of my sibling. I mean, it could be anything. Yeah. And, And you're bringing that into the room. And then suddenly you're making me like, I wasn't paranoid about race until you brought it up. But now you're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be sitting here thinking that because I'm, let's say, I don't know, Japanese, mm-hmm. I'm of Japanese descent. And and now like, I'm supposed to be thinking that there's this wall between you and I mm-hmm. like, okay. And, and how does it play out? So you and I are, we are both white women and we appear to be maybe around the same age. We probably have some demographics in common. Now, to me, I'm not going to assume that that means we share a whole lot in common. Mm -hmm. But how are we supposed to, like, if we were following this model and you and I are of the similar demographics, are we supposed to be, like, sitting here having this client-therapist relationship where we're mutually self-flagellating, where we're sitting here talking about, like, how horrible it is that we're white women? Mm -hmm. Like, how, how does that work? 
I, you know, I think so. We were not really told a whole lot about how to work with white people just to talk about uh, the, the professor in that particular course referred to white women offhandedly as Becky's basic bitches and nothing special. She used these terms to refer to white women. She also gave a, uh, a sh she gave a little speech on white women's tears and how they had been overvalued culturally and historically and how it was our job to make sure that we set this right with our clients. I don't know what that means. The implications seem to be that we're, we're to undervalue white women's feelings. I, I never really got that out of her. This was just sort of shocking to me that she said this. Um, so we spent a lot of this particular course watching videos that were comic about white people being clueless. And, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of attention paid to what we were supposed to actually do when we, we were sitting with them. We did talk a lot about the one up, one down relationship that you would have as a white counselor with a client who's of a quote unquote marginalized ethnicity. Um, it, it, it really does, like you said, it's very reductive and it really reduces people down to stereotypes because as you said, you know, you could have, you, I, I it's, it's crazy that we have to say this in this day and age that you don't, you cannot know something of substance about a person's character or experiences by looking at their skin color. You just simply cannot. Like, I've heard you talk about the fact that you went through um, experiences being in a minority as a white kid growing up. And I did too. I grew up in South Texas. I was in a, a largely Hispanic community where I was one of the only white kids. And so, you know, I know from experience that this is in-group, out-group dynamics that can happen anywhere. You're going to have the, if you don't fit in, you don't fit in, and you're going to have experiences of what we now call marginalization. That's the hot topic word, but you're, I always thought that this was kind of a strength that I could bring to my, my counseling relationships, that I actually know what that feels like and that this would be a strength. And I was told in this course that uh, this meant that I could do harm to my Hispanic clients. So when I, I mentioned, well, you know, you're being a little simplistic, this, this whole concept of, of white means this, that you, a white person could never have experienced these things. You know, I can use my own background as an example to show you that I, I have experienced this and I do know what it's like to be, to experience racial bullying. I, uh, one of the things that really surprised me in this class was that in, I felt like if anybody else had spoken up and said this, they would have been praised for it. You know, a, 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 say a black student who said, I've experienced um, macroaggressions, <laughs> not just microaggressions. I've experienced racial bullying. I don't think that the teacher would have turned to that student and chastised them and told them that they needed to get some therapy so that they cannot victimize their white clients in the future. But this was exactly what was told to me. I'm thinking of the um, un unpacking the white privileged backpack yeah. model. Have you ever heard about that? The the invisible backpack, right? And mm -hmm. and I remember times I've gone through that. You know, really in good faith, trying to work with this framework. But I, but I'm like, but I didn't have this experience. But I didn't have that experience. Like mm -hmm. one of them being that you grow up surrounded by people who look like you. Mm -hmm. 
where you and I didn't have that experience, no. right? So imagine being handed like, well, according to the addressing model, I have white privilege because I'm white skinned and therefore that means I grew up surrounded by people who looked like me, but I didn't. But then like, okay, but my experience is not valid. I'm being, I'm, it, it's like such a blatant form of gaslighting. And I know that term is overused, mm-hmm. but like you're being told you did not have the experience that you had. I know better than you. I, I, so I wonder what this is an enactment of. Um, and I also wonder how you, Leslie, like how you've managed to stay sane and how you've grounded yourself in actual psychological theories throughout this process. Um, and I, I wonder where to begin. You know, do we begin with the the expectation to self-flagellate? I, I really want to kind of speculate about that, right? Like, if you and I are in a client-therapist relationship, and let's say you're my therapist, mm-hmm. and you are approaching this from the social justice framework, from, let's say, the addressing model, um, and you're ranking yourself and my, you're, you're ranking each of us according to these very simplistic hierarchies mm-hmm. where whatever you know at the surface tells you everything you need to know to check off the boxes to give us the ranking. Like, then you, you arrive at a score where, like, either you're more privileged and I'm more oppressed or the other way around. So, okay, let's let's say that you arrive at a score in which... Um, I'm more privileged than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you are oppressed relative to me, according to the addressing model. And okay, and let's say I'm a white woman and I'm crying. <laughs> I'm crying because my cat died or my boyfriend dumped me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, how how were you supposed to? feel toward me? How are you supposed to think about me? How are you supposed to respond to me? I, I think that they, they do allow for more nuance than just like, like plugging in a formula, but it's more about continually engaging in those conversations. It's a continual comparative Mm -hmm. victimhood. So it's like, um, it's, it's more about dissecting and obsessing over all of those different demographic categories, those immutable characteristics, and what it means for the individual in order to get people to constantly see the world in those terms. So I don't know if there's if it's quite as simple as like, let's plug in the formula, I come out with an M, you come out with a P, and so now I'm going to treat you. It's more, um, so you grew up, let's just say, let's say you grew up uh, well off. But then you also had, you know, disconnection from your parents. So, and um, I don't know, maybe you weren't allowed to participate in all the the, pro- the programs that your more your wealthy peers were able to do. So, so we're supposed to talk that through and dissect that one piece of of your life to get you to think about how you've been a victim and how you've been privileged over other people on every facet of your identity, and. To really dwell in that space is where they're wanting our conversations to go. Um, And then to talk about the endless obsessing over allyship 
and what it means to both, uh, so that this, this one professor gave examples of using your privilege and also being a white savior. And these examples were almost indistinguishable from one another. And yet one was bad and one was good. I think it's just, they want to keep you in this sort of circular obsession over these concepts of privilege and marginalization more than they want to reach any particular outcome with respect to the the client-therapist relationship. Do you think that therapists are being taught to understand transference and countertransference anymore? I I mean, in with respect to this, I don't think so. I think that that is discussed. In in fact, in some of the classes, even throughout the program that I've been in, some of them are are high quality. I would say good professors, and they really are trying to teach these these more tried and true classic concepts of therapy. Um, like my addictions counseling classes were fantastic, I would say. And in these classes, there's this jarring little bit where they throw in the social justice stuff, where you have to address all of these things. And it sort of stands out in stark contrast sometimes. Other times, the focus is on the social justice. And and that it feels like there's no room for person-centered therapy in that. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro cover by 8 Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I think I know what you mean. I did a continuing education course this past year with um, Frank Anderson, MD, who seems like a wonderful therapist. Um, And he's the one facilitating all these interviews with different experts in the field of internal family systems therapy. So this is like, I don't know, like a 16 or 20 hour online course in IFS, internal family systems. And it was just basically one conversation after another where Frank Anderson is interviewing some other expert in the field. And he's lovely and all the conversations are lovely. And then there's the segment 
on the DEI stuff, diversity, equity, inclusion, Mm -hmm. or maybe it was just, actually, maybe it was just the LGBTQ segment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But as anyone who's been following these issues knows, like, when you talk about LGBTQ, you're actually talking about the TQ. Like, Mm -hmm. the LGB stuff Mm -hmm. is increasingly pushed to the side. And ironically, I mean, Frank himself is gay and probably, like, has plenty of adequate experience both as a gay person and as a, a someone who's been a therapist for so many years that I'm sure he could adequately speak to LGB issues. But in the section on LGBTQ, which really means TQ, there was this part where he said, born in the wrong body, Mm. as if that's just a fact, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So here's this really like lovely, grounded, evidence-based person with a lot of insights, talking for hours and hours, And then he's like, yeah, that must be so hard to be born in the wrong body Mm. without separating, without making that distinction, which I think internal family systems is, offers great tools for making that distinction. You know, that you could say from an IFS lens, you could, you could name a part of you, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A, A part of you that feels disconnected from your body, right? A part of you that has a sense of, I just don't want to be here mm-hmm. or something's not right with the most foundational thing in my existence. You know, like there's so many ways to explore what someone might mean mm-hmm. when they use the words, I feel like I was born in the wrong body, but to have it be a statement of fact, it was just that jarring. So I think I know what you mean. You know, the courses where it's added as this jarring element mm-hmm. and the courses where it's it's kind of the foundational theory. You're bringing up a really good point there, too. And that's that's something that I felt very strongly when I started this program. It feels like concepts have been discussed and decided that I'm not seeing the work for it. Like we've changed, we've shifted into this new way of thinking about what it means to be a human being. But where's where's that discussion taken place? And where's the evidence for this new approach to race and gender, for instance? When was it decided that, you know, being white means this and not and being not white means this, being BIPOC? When when was all of this decided with every other element of the teachings that I've received as a psychology student that you can see the history, you can see the work, you can that's this is a huge part of the study of psychology is to watch how we evolved into the way that we think about these things. And yet with social justice it's this new thing that's just sort of been plopped in there and it's plopped in with the with this veneer of absolute authoritative truth and yet we're not we're not seeing the work where how did we get from where we were to where we are now in just a few short years you bring up such a good point there leslie i'm thinking about uh, a tweet thread i made recently on professionalism and consensus and how how any professional field normally reaches a consensus is by the process that you're discussing. Like Mm -hmm. it's a combination of evidence, experimentation, cultural trends, dialogue, Mm -hmm. um, hypotheses, and, uh, you know, the building blocks of a theory coming together. And then when there's enough evidence, when there's enough dialogue, when people who are maybe more conservative, not in a political sense, but conservative by temperament in terms of openness to new ideas, mm-hmm. you know, or or maybe being a little bit more old school, when those 
voices that are holding back are convinced because there's a sound enough evidence base, then we kind of evolve into a new consensus. Mm -hmm. And actually the, the place that this particular tweet thread started, I'm just remembering it now, was uh, declaring once again that there is no consensus in the medical field and there's no consensus in the mental health professional field that so-called gender affirming care is safe, effective, and medically necessary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I can't state that point clearly or emphatically or repeatedly enough. And so what's happened instead where you have people like Rachel Levine, head of Department of Health and Human Services or the Assistant Secretary or whatever um, that man, by the way, is, uh, saying that there's no debate. Well, of course there's debate. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is that it, it hasn't followed that natural process that you and I are talking about where someone proposes something new in a field and then the field debates it and looks at the evidence and, and mm-hmm. tests things and sees how they work over time. And then they arrive at consensus. That's not what's happened. Instead, it's just like you're saying where like this new logic has been just plopped down mm-hmm. and in the middle of everything. And we're all supposed to accept it at face value. And what I was trying to point out was that consensus is something that's supposed to arise organically through the integration of whatever doubts and reservations anyone in the field might have. Mm -hmm. And it's expected that we treat each other with respect, right? That if a colleague is like, I don't know, I feel skeptical, this idea you're proposing seems kind of radical, that the burden is on you as the one proposing the new idea Mm -hmm. to provide the proof and to work with your colleagues' doubts. Mm-hmm. And, the you know, in any professional community, the doubts of your colleague are an asset because they help mm-hmm. you make your argument more robust. Your colleague voices their doubts and you're like, oh, well, let me go find a study on that or let me design a study mm-hmm. to test that out because you're right. I see that we don't actually have the answer to that question. And you work together. Um, and, but what this social justice, uh, crowd has done instead is they've tried to squash Mm -hmm. and repress um, the process of reaching consensus by saying, you know, by basically removing the credentials and the professional respect for anyone who voices doubts. So rather than I see you as a colleague who has your own educational background, has your own history and experience in the field, and your doubts are going to help me make my argument more robust, or you're giving me something to push up against, something to prove. Um, It's, well, if you disagree with me, you don't deserve to be here in the field. Because don't you know, this is a new consensus. Mm -hmm. And if you disagree with it, I'm going to try to get your license removed, or I'm going to try to silence your voice within the community. Mm -hmm. So instead of professional conduct, instead of the natural process by which we reach consensuses in any given field that actually are going to serve the test of time, we have uh, essentially emotional abuse tactics, right? Yeah, absolutely. We have, and I'm thinking about, um, I can't remember who originally came up with the acronym, but you've probably heard the fog of fear, obligation, and guilt. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the emotional quality around this stuff. It's like, agree with us or else, mm-hmm we're going to threaten your livelihood and your reputation, right? Mm-hmm. Fear. Um, and and we're going to use uh, emotional manipulation tactics to make you feel guilty 
whether it's, you know, for your so-called privilege or whatever it is, to make you feel obligated mm-hmm. to go out of your way to accept this narrative hook, line, and sinker and and never do that again. We're gonna we're gonna scare and guilt you out of ever raising any objections again. And you're mm-hmm. like, you know, and you have to think very quickly on your feet to even realize what happens when you're getting swept up in the fog like that. Yeah, it's a forced consensus based on sort of an arrogant narcissistic entitlement. And I I think that there are people who are being intimidated by that um, who don't agree with it and stay silent because they feel like there's a consensus around them, even though there's not, probably not. But my concern is really for the young people who are coming up who are not really being taught to think critically and understand things from a classical foundation, the way that older people who would have gone through school prior, these, these people are, are being presented with just one way of thinking. And it answers all the questions. It ties it up in a neat little bow. And I see a mix. When I was in, um, in in-person classes, for instance, at Antioch, um, the, the multicultural course that I referred back to, it was such an interesting mix of, of responses to the work. People who really seemed to believe it. Like there was a, a trans woman in my class who um, shut me up a couple of times by saying we'd heard enough white voices. And so, you know, I was to, to sit, stand down. And then there were people who would thank me after class for speaking up and just asking questions. I was really polite. I just asked questions when things didn't match up. And then there were there were people who seemed like true believers and people who seemed like they really didn't agree but didn't have the confidence, I guess, to say anything about it themselves. So, it, yeah, I, you make a really good point about the way that this is being introduced into this field. And it is really, it's, it's interesting. I think that the, 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 the gender issue, the way that we're talking about gender now, the, the TQ, is rife with contradiction. There are so many contradictions just within the way we're treating that issue. Like, is it, so is it an issue of mental health concern or is it simply an access to consumer medicine because if it's an access to consumer medicine why do we have to go through this process of getting a therapist to check off that they affirmed you the affirmative therapist is not is just kind of a little checkbox on your way get your letter and go forward this the way that the therapists are being told to handle transition in children for instance is just see them affirm them send them on their way. It, any other kind of consumer medicine access doesn't involve the mental health aspect. We're increasingly trying to depathologize gender dysphoria, yet why do we still have the therapist involved in it? it? That right there, there's some contradiction. If the therapist is involved, then the therapist should be allowed to do their job, which is to explore and discuss and not shy away from issues of where is this coming from and you know, what else is going on with you? So it's full of contradictions. You're bringing up a larger question of how is the role of the therapist being redefined Mm -hmm. over time? Mm 
So let's go there. When you first decided to pursue a career in counseling, what was your conceptualization of what the role of a therapist is in the life of a patient? And then when you were at Antioch, what sense did you get from them about their underlying assumptions about what the therapist's role is? That's a great question. Um, I think when I first decided to go into, when I decided I'd like to study to become a counselor, I was in law school at the time and I was thinking, you know, I really, I'm doing this because I want to help people solve problems. And I think that the, the way that I want to do that is different. I think I want to back away from this legal um, work and move into something that's more intimate. And so my conceptualization of what the counselor or therapist would do is really to spend time with genuine interest and genuine openness to get to know the client, um, become the, someone who can get alongside the client and understand the world from the client's perspective and listen to what the challenges and the rough spots are for that person and help them to explore, examine, and formulate goals and find a better balance of health in their life in whatever way that might be. I mean, it might, it could be anything from major relationship dysfunction across the board for an individual to something that's more acute, like a grief um, and loss issue for someone that they're having trouble be with bereavement or, you know, any myriad of things, but just to really get alongside, understand the client from an objective, as an, as objective as a person can be, um, understand that person and help them to find balance in the way that that is meaningful to them. What I found at Antioch is different is there, the objectivity is gone. There's definitely a way to be a person according to the way counselors are being trained now. And um, there's a, there's a very political bent to this now. I, I think I mentioned to you, I don't know if, I, if I've mentioned it since we've been um, doing this, this recording, but um, when I spoke up about some of my concerns to my faculty advisor, my faculty advisor admitted to me that they are aware and they speak about in their faculty meetings the fact that they're not training counselors who are going to be able to work with the Trump supporter. And this is how she put it. She said, the Trump, what does that mean? Does that mean uh, the way that I'm hearing it, it's anybody who's voting Republican, which that's half the country. Counselors are going to be for a certain political base. And that's, that, I mean, that sounds crazy to even say that, but that's actually what they're telling us. And the way that the rhetoric is, is going on in the classroom and from the administration, it, I'm really seeing that supported, that we have a class of mental health professionals who have been trained to see the world from a very strong standpoint and to imprint that upon their clients. What uh, type of license was this program designed to help a person get? Um, this was uh, LMHC or MFT. They're or KREP MFT. accredited. Yeah, so, 
That's hard to believe. I know. Um, I'm an LMFT, licensed Mm -hmm. marriage and family therapist, and we're trained to think in terms of systems, not systems the way that the social justice Mm -hmm. narrative would teach you to think about systems, but systems more broadly, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. why I say in the, in the intro to my podcast, I say that I talk about the social ecosystems that we are constellated Mm -hmm. in, right? And we know that the individual, the the health of it, the individual cannot be separated from their environment. And I think on some level that I and someone with a critical social justice lens would agree on that at the, at the most broad level, we would disagree when it gets down to, you know, what that means in practice. Um, But the health of our relationships matter. And even if every single patient that ever saw an Antioch-trained graduate was a lifelong Democrat, there would still be Republicans in their family, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think about my own evolution over time and I'm just voting Republican for the first time in my life this election mm-hmm. because I'm a single issue voter at this point because children's lives are at stake. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to vote to get gender ideology out of schools. I'm going to vote to get, you know, to stop pediatric gender transition. Mm-hmm. Those are the issues that I'm prioritizing right now. I am pro-choice. I have other views that are a lot more left-leaning, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Like I need, you know, but I'm saying like, even as somebody who up until a couple of days ago when I worked on my ballot, and even as somebody who, you know, for whom the vast majority of my clients here, you know, Portland, Oregon, uh, have been very left-leaning, I'm thinking about how I've conceptualized my clients' relationships with their Republican voting relatives. Mm -hmm. And I don't ultimately think it's helpful. After trial and error and thinking about this and, you know, applying psychological frameworks to it, I don't think it's helpful for me to join with my clients in feeling outraged about the perceived bigotry and ignorance of their families. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I always think there's more to the story. You know, I personally have really benefited from the work of John Jonathan Haidt mm-hmm. um, on moral foundations theory. And I recommended that to clients and they found it helpful as well. Um, now, there are times that it is appropriate for an individual to cut off their family. You know, if there's someone kind of irredeemably abusive in mm-hmm. a family. Mm-hmm. And, and those are really difficult decisions that as therapists, we we help our clients make ideally with a lot of care mm-hmm. and uh, you know respect for nuance and understanding the costs as well as the benefits. Mm-hmm. You know, the decision to go no contact with someone is not a decision to take lightly. It is appropriate in certain circumstances, and I've definitely helped people make that decision. Usually, having to do with and a very abusive parent or mm-hmm. ex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've made those decisions myself. There are certain people I've gone no contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there aren't a whole lot of situations that warrant that and that we should be clear on really what criteria need to be at play mm-hmm. for that to really be a generally healthy decision. You know, I think like if you've been, let's say like molested 
right? Mm -hmm. And that person has never apologized or acknowledged what happened. Yeah, maybe you don't want to show up to the family parties where they are. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a line, you know. But um, but I think what's happened with this kind of critical social justice lens is that the mentality that would be appropriate to have about truly egregious abuse without any redemption or remorse, we apply that same mentality, or counselors are being taught to apply that same mentality to, you know, quote unquote microaggressions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's like I saw this um, TikTok the other day. I don't, I'm, I'm not on TikTok, but I see things people share mm-hmm. from TikTok. And this might have been from like libs of TikTok or something, mm-hmm. but it was an adult family member sitting around with a, a water spray bottle having this conversation with her mother in which she was talking to her mother like, a naughty child hmm. saying every time you misgender my partner or whatever, I guess it was like these two adult siblings and both of them had like partners who used neo pronouns or something. Hmm. It was like every time you misgender my partner or my sister's partner or whatever, you're getting sprayed with a water bottle wow. like you do with a cat Wow, that you're trying to train to her mother. And yeah, huh. it's like people are being taught that it's okay to hold these truly hateful Mm -hmm. and incredibly entitled attitudes toward ordinary human beings just because they disagree. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's so important really to do the opposite. And and I feel like a lot of the work of counseling when you're trying to restore relational health is, is you're helping people make really challenging decisions with no easy answers about what are those times that you need to go no contact mm-hmm, with someone mm-hmm. or that you need to put some amount of distance, you know, some boundaries like, okay, I love you. I'm showing up to the dinner, but mm-hmm. I'm not staying at your house mm-hmm. or we're not talking politics or we're not talking religion or whatever, you know, the different degrees, kinds of boundaries are, are appropriate for different situations. Um, but, you know, helping people make those decisions Versus the decisions where, you know, you're figuring out how do I try to be more tolerant? How do I try to find a way to coexist with this person where I don't have to cut off my family? I don't have to cut off my past. I don't have to cut off the parts of myself Mm -hmm. that have ambivalence about the situation or the parts of myself that are attached to this person. How do I make more room? And that's where I think something like moral foundations theory can be really helpful. That's, Mm -hmm. you know... And for anyone who's interested in this topic, I would recommend my episode um, with Lisa Swallow from Crossing Party Lines. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend my conversation with Robin Atkins on abortion, on abortion, where we kind of model how we as two therapists with different views on abortion think people could potentially have healthier dialogues around contentious issues. I think whenever possible, we should kind of default toward how do I increase relational health by you know, helping with emotion regulation, helping with seeing things from different perspectives, mm-hmm. seeing how someone who maybe votes differently than you do or worships differently than you do is, as Lisa Swallow puts it, not immoral, but differently moral. Mm-hmm. How can I look for um, whatever values we might share? In common? You know, that's where like nonviolent communication is a useful framework, mm-hmm. identifying basic human needs, universal values, things like that. Um, so when I hear that, there's an accredited counseling program that people are spending tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to get these degrees, dedicating years of their lives. And, and they're not 
coming out of that program equipped to have a client who voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a Trump supporter. I frankly think he's disgusting. I, I, <laughs> but but I do think I have an obligation as a therapist to be able to, as you're saying, remain as neutral as possible and objective and curious mm-hmm. about, you know, how do, how do I reconcile the cognitive dissonance, right? If, if I have a pre-existing notion that Trump is disgusting, which I do feel that way, and if I generalize that to mean anyone who ever voted for Trump or considered it is mm-hmm. also disgusting, morally disgusting, that, you know, if, if I'm coming in with that understanding and then someone shows up in my office and I find out that they voted for Trump, I have some cognitive dissonance to reconcile there. And I better do a damn good job of reconciling that cognitive dissonance in a way that does not harm my client, you know? Because if I'm just going to project the logical conclusion of, well, then this person must be disgusting and unworthy of my empathy, compassion, or curiosity, there's no way I can possibly be a good therapist for that person. Mm -hmm. In fact, they might walk away feeling worse. Even if I manage not to really express how I'm feeling, they're going to pick up on it. Mm -hmm. It's going to affect how much respect and curiosity I can bring. So I better have a different way of reconciling that, right? Like, which is, I I need to have some way of expanding my mind that this is a human being in front of me, worthy of respect and consideration. And there's something they know that I don't know Mm -hmm. that caused them to make that political decision. There's some values that Trump represents to them, or maybe there's, uh, you know, a cost-benefit analysis that was going on in their mind. Because how mm-hmm. many of us actually vote for a political candidate that we feel 100% about? I mean, there are some people who feel that way about Trump, and I would hope that I would be able to be a therapist for them too, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But I, but just to be able to understand that we all have our own cost-benefit analysis going on, um, therapists have a responsibility, I think, to be able to do that work cognitively and emotionally within ourselves so that whatever we learn about someone, we're not like, oh, sorry, I can't deal with that. You know, Mm -hmm. it used to be that there are certain, it it used to be that we understood our scope of practice in terms of what conditions we could treat. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't have formal training in dialectical behavioral Mm -hmm. therapy, right? So if someone comes to me looking for DBT, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, if you strongly feel like I'm the right fit, and you've done DBT before, like you've done a DBT group or workbook, Mm -hmm. then bring your DBT to me. We'll work with it Mm -hmm. if I'm the right fit otherwise. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking for a DBT therapist, I'm not it. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, that's modality, right? We're talking about diagnosis. Um, I don't have specialized training in obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm. It's not something that I would say I specialize in. And while I could potentially be the right fit for certain people with OCD. I would say if someone has severe OCD and that's their Mm -hmm. main concern, I would refer them to someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, so it used to be that we understood our scope of practice in terms of what conditions we work with, what modalities we work with, what populations we serve. Like Mm -hmm. I don't serve a geriatric population and I no no longer work with small children. But to have your scope of practice be limited based on politics, you know, to say like, I'm sorry, I can't work with Republicans. Um, I just can't see how that could possibly be accredited or evidence-based. And I also personally am of the belief that if you can't work with someone based on how they're voting, then you probably aren't equipped to really help anyone because people change, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. A, a client could change their minds, uh, 
based on any number of things that could happen in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, there's that family element or there's just always that element of the unexpected. And if, if you as a therapist don't have any, not only tools, but if you don't have any motivation, if you don't feel like you have an ethical responsibility that you're trying to live up to, to understand people who think and vote and worship differently than you, then I I fail to see how you could really help anyone. Mm -hmm. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. The way that, that the social justice ideology encourages cognitive distortions on a number of levels. Like uh, you were just talking about family members that vote Republican or working with a client who votes for Trump. So what... I, just to dissect that whole concept of the Trump supporter, right? How many of us have voted for somebody but wouldn't call it, uh, ourselves a supporter of that person? It's the framework. It's that 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 automatically means like if if I vote for this person's policies, maybe it's a better of two evils sort of situation. There's probably a lot of people who voted for Trump who are not waving a Trump flag that just felt like the way that the issues shook out they were more in favor of what he was standing for, and they don't support a lot of other things about the man. Um, this whole concept of like Trump derangement syndrome, which is kind of a cute little phrase, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Like people take the person's worst character flaws and then blow that up to be everything about that that person. So paint him with one brush. I'm not defending him. I'm not a fan of him at all. I just mean... They just he's just a person. He's just a political um, character. So one one side of the political coin. If somebody is a lifelong Republican voter, they probably voted for Trump, whether or not they were a huge supporter of everything about him, or liked his character, or liked what he had to say about women, or whatever. And so the way that we're we're hearing these the people within the university talk about this entire political what do you want to call it, like party, I guess, 
this whole anybody with a party affiliation is just smeared as a racist, bigoted. I mean, these things are if that's not an example of a cognitive distortion, I don't know what is. And that goes towards like the um, the issues with with white privilege. That's another cognitive distortion. You're going to look at somebody who's got light skin and you're going to assume a whole host of things about that person without ever really having a conversation with them and finding out what's it really been like for you living your life. You know, what what are the issues that have been impacting you and and even what are your racial issues? What what issues have you had around race? You can't know something about somebody just from looking at one little characteristic. And this is a huge problem. It's just it's anti-psychology what they're teaching. And I'm thinking that people who are priding themselves in this approach to counseling are probably getting a lot of ego gratification out of the idea that they are here to serve, quote unquote, all members of the BIPOC community, all mm-hmm. members of the LGBTQIA community. And and I'm thinking about the Black guests I've had on my show, and none of them would want to see one of these therapists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Adam Coleman is a Republican who's Black, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, Ada Akpala. Michael D.C. Bowen, um, Mm -hmm. Corey Drayton, whose episode just came out today, like they're all black intellectual deep thinkers who would feel really uncomfortable seeing a therapist of whatever race who was bringing this kind of lens, who is just assuming, oh, you're black. Great. I'm here for you. I would never support one of those Trump voters, you know, (laughs) and it's like that's, you know, there's so much prejudice well, it's incredibly um, condescending, too, to say, yeah. you know, I'm here I am, this privileged white person. How does it feel for you, a marginalized black person, to sit with me? How condescending is that? I mean, what what message yeah. are you sending to them? You're not you're not saying I, you know, we're we're you're a blank slate to me right now. Tell me about your life. You know, let's let's what are you what's on your mind and yeah. what what are the issues that you have that you want to talk about? You're assuming things. And projecting those things. And one of those things is a, an assumption of hierarchy, which is completely inappropriate and horribly condescending. Yeah. And I feel like our job as therapists involves a lot of perspective taking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for ourselves, we, we have to be able to, to engage in perspective taking and also mm-hmm. oftentimes helping our clients with perspective taking. Yeah. Right. Like, how much of the time are we helping people who are really struggling in a way that could be aided by being able to see from a different lens? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they even have to ultimately change what view they come down on in the end, but it could still be really helpful to look at things from a different angle, mm-hmm. whether it's looking at their problems from a different angle, looking at themselves and their behavior from a different angle, or trying to see how someone they care about, someone they're affected by, mm-hmm. um, trying to see that person's perspective mm-hmm. from a different angle. And and that comes up in all kinds of ways that aren't racialized necessarily mm-hmm. or affected by social justice issues whatsoever. But I'm thinking, for instance, about, you know, let's say someone who uh, is feeling 
hurt and offended and devalued that their boss isn't taking a more proactive stance with having a conversation about getting them a raise or a promotion. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've helped people in that situation and the perspective taking there is, well, imagine you're a boss and you have a family to feed. How many items are on your to-do list in a given day? How many things are in your email inbox? Hey, if you want to put yourself at the top of that person's priority list, you need to amplify the urgency and importance of your request for yourself because they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. just take their perspective. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. a diminishment of your value so much as just looking at it from the angle of being somebody who has on their plate what they have on their plate, you know, mm-hmm. and there are just so many situations where perspective taking is valuable. And it seems like the field is losing that. I'm just having a hard time squaring that, you know, how a program could teach the kinds of things that are being taught at Antioch and yet also uh, teach good perspective taking skills. Well, in a, in a weird way, it's kind of a perversion of exactly that. Like there's, there's a way in which these multicultural programs could be really valuable and really helpful. And that's to say that illuminating the fact that depending on different characteristics and but you know, even just use the demographics, that's fine. You know, let's talk about the demographic characteristics that a person can be identified by. Those things may predispose you to experiencing certain things in life. Like you cannot deny that being a woman predisposes you to certain things that a man is not likely to have experienced. And the same for different ethnic categories, the same for um, socioeconomic categories, religious experiences, et cetera. And that all is a form of perspective taking. So you're, you're, you're talking to future counselors who are going to have a really diverse population of clients and you want to give them an overview of like, these are the sorts of things that you might encounter and you should be sensitive to and you should be aware of. The problem with social justice is where it sort of jumps the shark is it takes the stereotyped version of that and it tries to apply it back to the individual level. And that's where I think that intersectionality, as they teach it, is is the absolute opposite of individuality, because it says that we can know something about you by sort of taking the aggregate of your group, whatever group it is, X group experiences and making an average based on that and then applying that back to you as the individual and assuming it of you. And that's where I think it sort of Mm -hmm. falls apart, because it is... uh, and, and this is where, when I first started um, learning about this and started this, this program, I tried to be on board with it. And I thought, okay, you know, I think maybe this teacher is just teaching it in a really clumsy way. Maybe it's a problem with her and she's just not understanding. So it, it seems like at its, this is where I, I think that it, it um, can be actually tempting to some people to go along with it because it, it takes a core of truth and then distorts it so horribly that what you end up with is some kind of a monster when you're done. Yeah, I agree that there are elements of truth. And I think about when I was in grad school from 2010 to 2013, how there was a mixture of good quality teachings with some helpful aspects mm-hmm. of cultural competency training and some unhelpful ones. You know, there, there are, there are certainly things that any, any therapist 
should be aware of with mm-hmm. regard to how their clients' experiences might differ from their own and how that might be affected by demographics. And also, uh, it's not always safe to assume that mm-hmm. we have things in common with someone just because we share their demographics. Yeah. You know, for, for instance, like, in you know, when it comes to cultural competency versus cultural stereotyping, here's one, like, mm-hmm. the stereotype is that all Asians are good at math, right? If you hold that stereotype, that's disrespectful and demeaning, and you're not going to see your Asian client's experience necessarily for what it is. Mm-hmm. The cult- But it is at the same time culturally competent to know that if your client is a first or second generation Asian immigrant, it's very likely that their family placed a lot of emphasis on academic achievement mm-hmm. and, you know, probably wanted them to become a doctor of some kind. Like that's a really common experience for Asian immigrant families and how any one individual experienced it, that's for you to discover with your client. And there are so many things like that, you know, as women, you know, if you or I were to go to a male therapist, we would sure hope that he would understand in a way that helped us feel more comfortable that we're going to have certain experiences around menstruation and fertility that he can't relate to, but we would hope that he would understand with some sensitivity and competency. Mm-hmm. We're probably going to have experiences of sexual harassment and assault that he probably hasn't had, although men can have those experiences too, but in a different way and to a lesser degree, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are so many things like that, that we do want therapists to be understood able to understand. So I don't want anyone listening to get the impression that I think that every, you know, that we should be throwing out the baby with the bathwater of cultural competency here. Mm-hmm. But I think it comes down to how do we help people become successful? And that's, I, I'm kind of drawing a blank with how that is playing out in, in schools like the one that you've been going to. I mean, so if the idea is that you well, actually, let me let me think about this. The job of a therapist traditionally has been to help your client mm-hmm. be more successful in mm-hmm. their life, whoever that client is. Mm-hmm. And yes, and this represents a shift in that focus. It's not focusing on the individual. It's focusing on a goal for the culture at large. And how do you fit your individual client into that bigger picture? And that's really where again it it in as much as social justice is anti-individual it's anti-person-centered therapy and it just doesn't fit mm-hmm. and even even if we were to accept that as a valid framework i'm still curious what is the end goal because you know, teaching uh, a so-called privileged person that they're privileged, teaching a so-called mm-hmm. oppressed or marginalized person that they're oppressed or marginalized, whatever, like, where is that supposed to ultimately lead? How How is that awareness, how is putting on that frame of glasses to look through the world at conducive to supporting the mental health and the success of that individual in their life? That is a great question, and that's one of those big unanswered questions, just like telling somebody that their main job in being a counselor is to be an activist. Because if you're if you're a perpetual activist, then the process of activism becomes the goal, 
And just, just like the process here being a goal, it seems that with social justice, the goal is really just to continue having, as they like to call them, these difficult dialogues. You know, they want to have these, basically these struggle sessions. You just want to keep on having the exchange of, let's talk about how these identities are meeting up. Where's the privilege? Where's the marginalization? And spread that forward and make that a process of life. So I, I think that's a great question. I certainly never saw any end goal in it, in what they were teaching in school. And again, it is very contradictory, even within that program, because I had a lot of courses that had, I, I felt had high value. You know, my counseling communication and skills course was fantastic. I had assessment courses that were good, you know, on down the line. It's just that there's this undercurrent, this, this basic social justice training that you're given in your intro class. And then it keeps on coming at you through offerings uh, that the program sends and through communications through the administration. And it's this little add-on, like we talked about in every course, this little add-on. How can we tie this back into this identity framework? Maybe you can help me play this out because I, I really want to kind of steel man their position. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's an easy position to straw man, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm thinking about this example and, and maybe you can relate. I've throughout my career and I've been doing this while I've, I've had a number of clients who were women in male dominated professions. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about some of the issues that women in male dominated professions face, um, you know, workplace sexism that mm -hmm. could be subtle or overt, um, you know, downplaying of their, their value, their contributions, um, difficulty getting a raise or promotion, even when they clearly are more qualified than the next guy, you know, um, also, um, how asking for help is perceived is, is, you know, can be a gendered issue. Like for instance, um, as, as women, we are socialized to I mean, and I don't want to draw this generalization across the board because it's not always true, but I think it's generally looked upon more favorably when we ask for help because it shows like I'm being a good student. I'm going to the teacher during office hours because I'm trying and I'm aware of my limitations and that's how I improve. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas like the same type of asking for help um, from a boss or superior or coworker uh, when it's done by a man is interpreted as a sign of incompetency, right? So that can result in getting some wires crossed. So like a woman in a male dominated profession might go to her male boss asking for help with something. And her framework for doing that is like, this is proof that I'm good at my job, right? Mm -hmm. I'm good enough mm -hmm. to know when I need to ask for help. And mm -hmm. so I should be recognized. And the male boss perceives that as look how incompetent she is. She, she needs to ask for help. She should be able to do this on her own. So I've seen people get their, their wires crossed like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that the, the angle I would take is rooted in understanding um, general differences, not individual differences, because individuals may vary, but, you know, some general differences between the sexes and how, how our minds work, how we're socialized and things like that. And maybe just kind of helping provide psychoeducation to my female client 
about how she can more effectively advocate for herself. Like, for instance, earlier I gave that example of how, you know, you probably shouldn't take it personally that your boss isn't taking the lead on initiating a conversation about giving you a raise and a promotion. Mm-hmm. You know, think about it from the perspective of he has a hundred things to do. And we all usually try to start with what's most urgent and important. So how are you going to make it easier for him to see the urgency and importance of getting to having that conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's empowering, right? Mm-hmm. Especially because as women, we can be timid. We don't want to intrude. We are socialized to apologize for taking up space. So it's kind of a new skill to learn to be a little bit more assertive mm-hmm. in, in the workforce. And, and there are other situations like that where I feel like knowledge is power and we can talk about what kind of strategy is going to help you be successful in the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. And within that, certainly there's a place for processing your feelings of anger and frustration, especially mm-hmm. if, if there are real experiences of sexism that, you know, nine out of 10 people would say, yeah, that's sexist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then there's, there's also the kind of tricky, subtle process of figuring out those things that are a little bit more subtle and how you want to interpret them and mm-hmm. how you want to handle them and what battles you want to fight and what you want to let go of. Um, that's how I would approach it, right? If, if I have a client who's a woman in a male-dominated field and she's encountering these kind of typical problems. Um, so how would someone who went to Antioch in 2022 um, handle a situation like that? Because I'm curious if it ever gets around to something that's actually like practical and empowering. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen women take my advice and come back and say, I got the razor, I got the promotion, or you know, I got that colleague to back off or whatever. But but where how does any of this social justice based approach, like practically speaking, Mm -hmm. help people achieve anything. Could we steel man that position? Mm, I'm not sure. So um, in your example, you are, you're listening to the person in front of you. And when you start to hear certain patterns represented, you start to hear that she's experiencing certain things that in your mind, you can connect this back to a larger pattern that makes sense within that like sort of gender typical framework, right? And then you offer some psychoeducation, you sort of give her this bigger, you know, maybe maybe she has, she's seeing it just from her own perspective. And if you can bring it out and zoom out a little bit and show her how this tends to work for many women and what, what, these different elements could be if she were to zoom out and see things from a from a macro perspective you wait for her to sort of bring you in to her perspective before you assume that she's dealing with xyz just because she's a woman and so that's being like in responsive on an individual level to your client listening to what the the client's actual perceptions are and needs and maybe you might even want to float the idea and ask her so uh, you know, a lot of women have this experience in the workplace and they tend to experience this with their boss or, or male versus female, blah, blah, blah. Does that fit for you? Do you feel like that fits for your situation? And she can say, yeah, actually, or she can say, no, definitely not. I'm really assertive and I don't blah, blah, blah. And so then you're going to adjust and you're going to continue to, to respond to what the actual human being in front of you is dealing with on an individual level. And I, 
I couldn't, I don't, again, I don't know that, it's not that like a school like Antioch is just popping out cookie cutter people. I'm sure that a lot of the people that I've gone to school with are going to go on to help people quite a bit. The thing that I'm concerned about is the constant attempt to impress us with these these particular stereotyped values that I can't see how it does not seep in and cause problems with worldview and with also sort of creating that that baseline, that foundational arrogant assumption that this is the way it should be. This is the way that a life should be and we should fit into this picture. And so I don't know for sure that like an Antioch trained counselor would not handle that quite well for that client. They might. It's, but they will have, the school will have done its best to make sure that they have a very stereotyped perspective on what those interactions would look like. Um, they've done, they've been moving in a direction that I think is particularly alarming, where they're promoting the idea of degendering. Like they, in one of their materials that they they passed out to students, it was um, degender everything because reproductive care doesn't have to be for male or female. People with uteruses are people with uteruses. They are promoting um, continuing ed courses. I know I talked about one in, in that video um, where they replace the word woman with the term AFAB, people with vulvas, for assigned female at birth, people with... And this kind of dehumanizing language, whether if, if an Antioch student who's continually hit by that kind of information goes on to practice and be a very competent and good counselor it will not be because of it will be in spite of the stuff that they've been then told i i i want to believe that most of these people in this program are there because they really genuinely want to help people and really do want to see people as individuals and that in their work with clients i hope that they will find a good balance and realize that some of these techniques and trainings really are not working, but the school is doing its best to make sure that we are trained in, in this way. And I think the way, I, I think that some of the racial conversations are going to imprint a sense of guilt and victimhood on people, the more we keep talking about them. And they're also going to make people really uncomfortable, um, if you start talking about race all the time, you start talking about how if you're white, you know, people are resent you because of your whiteness and they think that they think this, that, and the other. Well, how is that person going to walk out into the world and be around other people? They're going to be more self-conscious about this and more guarded in their interactions with other people, especially people who aren't the same ethnicity that they are. And how, I don't think that that's adding something positive to our social structure in general. I think that's actually harmful and it creates thought distortions and new anxieties for people. But the area where it's probably most like acutely harmful is the gender stuff and the work with children on gender issues. I, I am really concerned about the affirmative gender model with working with young people and, and what that, what the implications of that are going to be for, for, 
you know, we've seen a, an increase in funding for school counseling. And we've also seen a lot of these mature minor doctrines going through where um, a, a, a minor child who's considered mature, and you can look at it, it's a very subjective test for maturity. It's just pretty much does the person that's assessing you think you seem like you can make reasonable decisions. And well, I mean, that's, that's very subjective. So uh, you can, your child in many states can go to their school counselor and be determined mature on the spot and be prescribed medications that you're not allowed to know about as the parent. You're not allowed to access that information. So your, your child could be on all kinds of things. Like they could be on, um, you know, psychiatric drugs. They could, could they move them down the line towards gender transition? Well, I don't know. It certainly seems like they might be able to because these schools are protecting this information from parents. So this is one of the areas where I think it's really alarming. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. where we're losing so much of the evidence base that we do have. I mean, with we have decades of research on these issues. You mm-hmm. know, it, we, we got into this part of the discussion by my bringing up an example of a real type of problem that many people face, you right. know, gender differences in the workplace. And, you know, when, when I talk with someone, however, organically or casually, I'm talking with you about how men and women in the workplace differ on average, mm-hmm. <laughs> not with, you know, on any specific individual necessarily, but, but there's actually an evidence base there. Right. Like, um, you know, one of my favorite books on this topic is why gender matters by Leonard Sachs. It's really good. And he, he mostly addresses it from the standpoint of what we need to know about raising children mm-hmm. um, and differences between boys and girls. But, um, you know, it, it's, we, we have an evidence base for understanding, on the whole, differences between men and women. And thinking about this kind of addressing model and the critical social justice lens, like sex differences should play a role in that. And we should be looking at what do we actually know about sex differences and how they might be. Right. But then you go into talking about the erasure of the word woman mm-hmm. and the de-gendering everything, you know, essentially removing our knowledge base about real sex differences between men and women, even though our differences when it comes to things like assertiveness and agreeableness, um, those do impact us in real ways, right? How men and women do conflict differently Mm -hmm. impacts us in real ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And to take that out of it is so anti-science. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're promoting this gender ideology, which is not evidence based, um, which tells you that you can have a boy great brain and a girl body or whatever, and that therefore you should mutilate your body to conform to your brain uh, while they're actually destroying the foundation of our knowledge of what actual differences we really mm-hmm. do have mm-hmm. between the brains of men's, men and women and how they operate. Yeah, it's a it's another contradiction. It's um, 
is gender all important or is it not important at all? It's both at the same time. And, you know, our, our children who are um, claiming a trans identity, are they responding to the pain of gender stereotypes? Or are they, you know, is this a bad thing or is this a good thing? Because it's almost like you're trying to stereotype what it means. You're basing trans identity on stereotypes, and yet you're claiming that it's due to the pain of not fitting into the other stereotypes. So it seems like the answer really is to, again, come back around to individuality and allow people to express themselves in the way that really works best for that individual and foster self-acceptance and, and um yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's rife with contradiction. And also this whole concept of like um, ha, respecting how somebody wants to identify, respect the way that the person wants to identify. I had a, a just a personal experience that I had earlier this year um, in June, I had a, a medical emergency and I ended up having um, an ovary removed and it was, it was a big deal. I had ovarian torsion, big emergency. So I ended up seeing a gynecologist as a, a follow-up, and this person, was she was not able to say the word woman to me. I was at the Women's Health Center, and she said women with, or she said people with ovaries, and she said people with uteruses. Even though I was sitting in front of her, and I was uh, clearly, I, I had used the word woman a couple of times. I clearly identified myself as a woman. It wasn't about respecting my identity. It was about virtue signaling to me that she respects other people. She wanted to represent people who were not in the room with us. So this wasn't, this is yet another contradiction. If we're supposed to respect the way someone identifies, we should respect the individual in front of us. And I have no problem with using gender inclusive language with an individual that I'm speaking with. But to use, to make an example of me in front of me to represent a group that's not even present, it seems like it's carrying this thing to a really distorted way. It, it's, it is just rife with contradiction, the whole philosophy. So, you know, I started off introducing you, saying that I hear from other graduate students and mm -hmm. people in the early stages of their counseling careers, and I, I want to acknowledge them. Can you share about kind of where you're at now with how you decided that it was worth it for you to speak out in the midst of what you're going through with your university and, and the kind of difficult choices before you, mm -hmm. how you're navigating those? Well, so I began this program in 2019. I have taken a couple of leaves of absence since beginning because I've really struggled with, do I stay and support what's happening here? With not only my money, but my patronage, my my presence in the classroom, and I think that at some point I I was trying to talk myself into seeing it more transactionally, like oh it's not it's a it, there's a lot of ethical problems with this this program and this work, but I want to get that degree, so this is what I just have to go through to come out on the other end, and and then I can practice how I want to. I have started to see things a little bit differently. First of all, they instituted a civility pledge, which is the social justice pledge, as I said, and I, uh, I cannot misrepresent myself. In, in, I, I would feel I am very 
I feel very strongly about that, just from a personal, moral, ethical perspective. I will not go along with something that I feel is wrong in order to get what I want out of it uh, at this point. I mean, there, I don't know if I could apply that to every single situation in my entire life. I'd like to think that I could, but I'm sure you could probably test me and find somewhere where I'd be willing to break, but this isn't it. This school has, I am, I am, I see what they are doing as being so inherently destructive to our culture. And, and I'm not saying that to be dramatic. I see it as intentionally, that is the purpose of what is happening here and what is being taught here. It is intentionally dismantling, in their own words, our culture. And I think that they're, I, I am not going to be a part of that. Um, I would really like to finish my degree. I have worked really hard on it. I would love to think that I, that I could come out of this with a master's degree. I don't have that many credits to complete. But I feel very conflicted continuing to work within this program. And I think that using the categorical imperative, if we were to do so, if everybody who felt the way that I do about their program were to stand up and walk away and take their money with them, these institutions would crumble. <laughs> they would be at the very least forced to rethink what they're doing. And that would send a very strong message that we reject their social justice framework and we want classical education values back. Uh, and so with that in mind, I just, at, at this point, I'm finding myself unable to go forward. And it was kind of a one-two punch that led me to go ahead and make that video. I had received an, an email from the chancellor about Indigenous Peoples Day, Columbus Day, turning it into Indigenous Peoples Day. And the way that this was worded, he, he quoted an essay from something called Anti-Racist Daily. And the very concept of anti-racism, you know, we could go into that. That's a whole other conversation. But it's, it doesn't mean not racist. It's a, it's a very particular term of art. And so the idea that the, the, the school is quoting from a really biased publication, ideologically biased publication in the first place is, is an issue. But this thing was just a screed on how we should act and how we should center the marginalized populations in every aspect of our lives. And, and so yet again, it was, it was a very directive editorial. And I've gotten so many of these from the school and I write back to them and, and I wrote back to him on this one. And I said, I, um, it's not that I disagree with everything that's written here. I don't disagree with all of it. I agree with some and I disagree with others, but I just think it's so inappropriate that you continue to send these things to the students. And right after this, I got the invitation to uh, a continuing education program for AFAB people with vulvas. And I, I just, I, at some point, there's, it, there has to be enough. And I've had enough with this school. I am calling them out. I think people deserve to know how their counselors are being trained, and that when you go, if you if you are bereaved, if you are having relationship issues, whatever your life circumstances are that make you want to go see a counselor, as so many of us do throughout our lives, I, I think you deserve to know that you are quite possibly not sitting in front of someone who has been trained to see you as an in, individual from an objective perspective. 
Well, thank you for sharing. I know this must, these must have been some really difficult decisions for you to make. I mean, you have your time and money and investment and credentials on the line. Uh, but I really appreciate that you're you're coming at this from a really deep place of integrity and being guided by your values and and thinking about what matters to you in the long run, mm-hmm. what matters for society. And and I, I want to also name, although you didn't go into it, there there's a leap of faith there that by following your intuition and sticking to your morals that somehow you'll be supported in that good will come you're trusting that you know if you have to redirect and have a coaching practice then that's how you bring your value to the world for now um so i really want to acknowledge your your strength and your clarity in that um i know you said you're not um planning to have a big public presence. You're actually a fairly private person. Um, so you did have some videos that went somewhat viral recently, um, but you're not necessarily going to be doing a whole lot more of that. But for those who are interested, where can they find you? Mm, so I have a YouTube channel um, that I just created uh, about two weeks ago. It's called The Radical Center. My practice is The Radical Center Consulting, and you can find me online at uh, the Radical Center Consulting. I think it's calm, might be org, sorry. And then I have a substack at the Radical Center. And I, I created the substack just to be able to share documents that I was going over in my videos because I want people to really, this is, you don't have to take my word for it. This is really happening. And and uh, I, I'm happy to show my work. And um, I am right now working with a lawyer who, my goal is to sue the school. I would like to sue Antioch for these unethical teachings. And my story, I could get into it. We'd get way in the weeds. But I have also, uh, I I feel that I have a case for racial discrimination, perhaps, and definitely for freedom of speech and um, compelled speech, maybe. I, there's a couple of different avenues to explore here. But um, I, yeah, on the advice of this attorney, I have created a Give Send Go account for my um, for my legal fees. So I if if I can be successful in suing this school, and I, and what I'm asking for is a re, a full refund of my tuition because it was based on false advertising of the program. If I can be successful in doing this, it'll send a pretty powerful message to universities around social justice teachings and forcing this race and gender ideology on students and ultimately on vulnerable people that these students are going to be serving in their professional careers. So uh, if people are interested in supporting me in that, um, I can send you the link for that. Great. We'll include that link in the show notes. Yeah. All right, Leslie, thanks so much. It's been great having you. Thanks, Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at 
You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.